wanna be the one who gives you everything so keep my eyes from beholding worthless things keep my eyes on you whoa keep my eyes on you good evening good evening good evening and welcome to daring dialogues i'm your host tonight shantae charles i hope that you all are having a great and wonderful day it is daring dialogues season nine episode nine and tonight we are doing our healthy wealthy wise segment where we are talking about neuroscience and also about genetics and we're going to be reading tonight from two books and then i'm going to test your mental acuity uh, with a little bit of a game on tonight. So I hope that you are ready. So tonight we're going to start off with the book, How the World Works, Neuroscience, Unlocking the Mysteries of the Brain and Consciousness. Um, And this book is compiled by Anne Rooney. We are on chapter three and we're talking about the localization of brain function. And um, this is where people began to sort of uh, figure out what parts of the brain were doing what. And as you can see from this cartoon I'm, I'm about to show you, this was a early method of trying to assign different functions to different parts of the brain. And of course, Um, This particular science was a pseudoscience, also known as phrenology, also known as um, scientific racism that would ultimately be debunked um, as they were trying to say or use this particular type of science to demean or dehumanize African people. So this science, phrenology was ridiculed by the medical profession, but it was enthusiastically adopted by many others, of course, those who would have a strong interest in supremacist notions. So this is a a cartoon from back in the day about this particular false science. The brain looks fairly homogeneous to casual observation, yet it was already by the 16th century credited with a range of abilities. The question naturally arose as to whether it has specialized areas or whether all these functions were jumbled together. Our best answer after about 500 years work is that it's a bit of both. One thing or many. Even the earliest models of the brain made some attempt at localizing functions in different regions but these were based more on thinking about how the brain should work rather than looking at how it does work. Galen's assumption that sensory input and motor control are handled at the front of the brain and the mental faculties in the ventricles set a pattern of general localization which was developed and refined in coming centuries. Finally, in the 17th century, ideas about localization began to be based on anatomical study rather than philosophy and tradition. At the end of the 15th century, human and animal dissection began after a hiatus of around 1800 years. Not only did anatomists examine their subjects with care, 
They also recorded what they saw in illustrated texts. From the time of Vesalius in the 16th century, anatomists found or at least acknowledged that many structures of the body, including the brain, do not match the accounts that were given by the early scientist Galen. Although more accurate accounts of the brain structure emerged as the autonomous the, an, the anatomist, excuse me, set to work, their understanding of what the brain does or how it does it remained unclear. Much of the brain looks relatively featureless. The mass of the cortex, dismissed as rind early on, does not have obvious fine structures like the small projection in the lining of your stomach or the air sacs of the lungs. The first person to investigate the anatomy of the brain thoroughly was the English physician Thomas Willis, a professor of natural philosophy at Oxford. Willis produced an influential monograph called Cerebri Anatome, or The Anatomy of the Brain, in 1664. In this, he gave a detailed account of the structure of the brain and coined the term neurology. Willis did not set out with the agenda that a modern anatomist would have. He stated that he wanted to, quote, unlock the secret places of man's mind and look into the living and breathing chapel of the deity. Dissection lay at the root of Willis's work. He directed dissections that were carried out by his assistant, the physician Richard Lower, in the back rooms of inns and private homes. Willis examined the structures exposed using a magnifying glass or microscope, and they were drawn by Christopher Wren, more famously known as the architect of the new St. Paul Cathedral at the time. He injected dye into the blood vessels of the brain to trace their path, and did considerable work on the circulation of the brain. Willis tried to work out the functions of the different areas he saw and described. He proposed that the gyri, or the bulges on the cerebral cortex, control memory and will, making him the first person to locate psychological functions in the cortex rather than in the ventricles. He attributed the many convolutions of the human cortex to the greater psychological abilities of humans than than other, of other angels, animals. Visual perception he attributed to the corpus callosum, a broad band of nerve fibers that joins the two hemispheres and is the largest mass of white matter in the brain. He seems to have envisioned it as rather like a screen on which images were projected for a rational soul to observe. He also attributed other types of sensation and movement to the corpus stratium, Involuntary movement and vital functions he assigned to the cerebellum at the lower back of the brain. Willis's suggestions regarding function were informed more about his ideas about the soul rather than actual empirical evidence. He believed in three types of soul, roughly following the pattern of Aristotle and Plato before him. In addition to the sensitive soul and the vital soul shared with animals, Humans have an immortal soul capable of higher thought, will, and judgment. The immortal soul had no material form, but did, in Willis's view, act upon the brain. He had no explanation for how the two might interact. The material soul, he explained in some detail. Following Galen before him, he described how animal spirits present in the brain and nerves are refined from the vital spirit which circulates in the blood. The animal spirit, he said, was generated in the cortex and cerebellum and stored in the brain. 
They travel along the nerves to the sense organs and muscles as needed. He describes something like a reflex arc, whereby sensory perception is processed when the cortex initiates the flow of animal spirits to the muscles. <laughs> this explains many types of action in a way that is available to both humans and animals. So animals, which he considered lack volition or will, move themselves only as they are excited by impulse. Humans have an additional way of responding, he proposed. The corpus callosum on perceiving images projected on it can initiate willed action. Willis's description of the structures of the brain was detailed and meticulous and the first to give the current numbering of cranial nerves which emerge from the brain and connect to parts of the head and the neck. He distinguished between white matter and gray matter in the brain, making the white matter responsible for the generation of animal spirits and gray matter responsible for their operation and distribution. His book effectively shifted the locus of mental activity from ventricles to the cortex, changing the direction of investigations of the brain. Even so, it did very little to reveal the workings of the brain and his broad localizations were not based on empirical evidence. Nicolas Steno lamented the state of ignorance about the brain, quote, we need only view a dissection of the large mass to have ground to bewail our ignorance. On the very surface, you see varieties which deserve your imagination, but when you look into the inner substance, you are utterly in the dark. Being able to say nothing more than that there are two substances, one that is gray and the other that is white. Now, here is a sidebar story that I found really interesting called Anne Green, Back from the Dead. Thomas Willis and his mentor, William Petty, often worked together on dissections, which they carried out in Petty's home. On one such occasion, they got more than they bargained for. Petty was allowed to claim for dissection the body of any criminal executed within 21 miles of Oxford. On the 14th of December, 1650, the pair prepared to anatomize the body of Anne Green, a scullery maid, who had been abused and subsequently hanged for the infanticide of her newborn child. The child was later discovered to have been stillborn. Green was hanged at Oxford, Oxford left suspended for half an hour, and then removed to a coffin into Petty's house. But when Willis and Petty opened the coffin and they prepared to dissect her, she made a strange sound and began to breathe. The two men revived her with hot cordial, tickled her throat with a feather to prompt coughing, and rubbed her arms and legs and then put her to bed with another person to warm her. Within 12 hours, she could speak, and in a month, she was fully recovered. She was granted a free pardon and went on to marry and have three more children. The story of Anne Green. Talk about getting more than you bargained for while trying to do a scientific experiment. All right. So, in all of that searching, at that point in history, they had yet to figure out there was more than a gray part of the brain and a white matter part of the brain. Our second reading for tonight is from 30 Second Genetics. Highly recommend this book for those of you all who want a crash course on genetics. Tonight we're going to talk about the human 
Y chromosome. The human Y chromosome. Perhaps next week we will talk about um, some designations that are coming down the pipeline. They're already in our society, but they are um, how people call themselves or how people term themselves. We might talk a little bit about, about that on um, next week when we talk about identity and sexuality. For tonight, though, we're going to talk about the genetics. So, here we go. In many animals and plants, the sexes are genetically determined. For instance, in most of these organisms, the presence of two X chromosomes drives the development of a female animal or plant. In contrast, males have an X and a Y chromosome. Y chromosomes exist in mammals, plants, and many other organisms, such as insects. The X chromosomes are generally large and full of genes, whereas the Y chromosome is smaller and carries few genes. Although the Y chromosomes in plants and animals do not originate from a common ancestor, the logic of their histories is the same. The X and Y chromosomes evolved from a pair of identical chromosomes through the process of differentiation linked to the appearance of the male determining gene on the Y. Once the Y chromosome emerged, other alleles important for male reproduction accumulated around the sex determining region. Subsequently, chromosomal rearrangements prevented the exchange of genetic material between the ancestral X and Y chromosome. This process accelerated the evolution of the Y chromosome, which lost most of its genes and seems to be on its way to disappearing. The Y chromosome is the genetic heritage transmitted from fathers to sons for millions of years. So, people talk about gender versus um, sex or sexuality or how people identify. This is a part of that conversation of what is actually determining whether someone is male or female. It is genetically determined. All right. So this is not talking about how you feel because some people may may say they feel female or they feel male, but your chromosomes are telling your genetic sex. Okay. Hope everybody understood that. Again, X and Y chromosomes derive from a standard pair of chromosomes that underwent a divergent process triggered by the appearance of a male determining gene on the Y. Something happened that triggered the male determining gene. That in itself is a whole preach word. You didn't just, you didn't just decide to be this. Something triggered the appearance of a male determining gene in your chromosomes. The degeneration process of the Y chromosome has been slow. It has lost thousands of its original genes. However, most of the now essential genes on the Y are present in several backup copies. Since the divergence of humans, the human Y chromosome has not lost a single gene. This means that the Y 
will be around for millions of years to tell the story of the male lineage of humankind. I wonder why. Pun intended. All right. You have, this is not opinion, okay? You have a 50-50 chance of being born male, XY, or female, XX. Y chromosomes determine sex but do not contain genes that code for your vital functions. These are found on the X chromosome. In other words, can we say we need both? Huh? Can we agree on that? For the humans, you need both. to think about okay just a little something to think about so the male's been around for millions of years that chromosome is not going anywhere but the vital functions of a human rest on the x chromosome you need x and you need y you might think it's a man's world but the vital functions of a human rest on the X. I don't know why people want to call me in the middle of my recording. By now, people should know. <laughs> There's no excuse. I've been doing this for what? Since 2016? No excuse. All right. So, now that we have gotten our reading out of the way, I want to test some brain power tonight. These are called catchphrases and I want to see how many of them you can get so they are visual pictures and I want to see how many of them you can get if you are listening to us tonight by anchor.fm forward slash daring dialogues we are signing off with you tonight and if you want to join us live you can join us live always on the daring dialogues facebook page at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Signing off, and we'll see you next week.